At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, this morning, friends, we are going to be launching into a new sermon series called King of the Mountain. And once again, uh, our, our text of Scripture that will guide us in this series is going to be Matthew chapters 21 through 23. We'll be looking at a few different vignettes than we did in our last series. Uh, but we're going to be in a series now titled King of the Mountain. Now, when we say King of the Mountain, it probably conjures for you, and it certainly conjures for me, the image of a game I used to play at the swimming pool growing up. How many of you have ever played King of the Mountain at a pool, okay? There's more of you in this service, okay? This is great. Uh, you, this story will make even more sense for you. But um, here's the thing. When I was growing up, I enjoyed going to the pool. I grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, it was hot, and so the chance to get in the water in the summertime was a good thing. But here's the deal. I did not like then, nor do I like now, to swim, Swimming is a way to avoid drowning, okay? It's not a form of recreation for me. Um, so what do you do when you, you like to go to the pool, but you don't like to swim? You, you play different games. And growing up, we would play gutter ball. That was a game that we would play when we'd go to the pool. We'd play sharks and minnows. Um, we'd play Marco Polo. Uh, and we would play King of the Mountain. Now, what is the game King of the Mountain? Well, the way that we would play it, at least in uh, Bartlesville, is we, there would be someone who would get up on top of a raft or some kind of flotation device, and everybody else would try to knock that person off of the raft. And that was a game that would occupy hours of our time, okay? Now, here's the thing. Why is this series called King of the Mountain? Well, the reason why this series is called King of the Mountain is because when I read Matthew 21 through 23, I see the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, ascending to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. It's a city on a mountain. But even more specifically, there is one high point within that city, and that is the Temple Mount area. And in Matthew 21 through 23, the king of kings ascends to the top of the mountain. And when he gets there, a number of different groups try to flip over his raft. They try to knock him off. And the way those different groups, whether it was the Herodians or the Sadducees or the Pharisees, the way they try to, to knock him off is by asking questions that they think are either too hard for him to answer or so politically charged or theologically charged that he was going to stumble over himself and embarrass himself as he attempted to answer these questions that they were asking. But also what we see as these questions are asked and as Jesus' raft is attempted to be tipped over, we see Jesus stand tall and strong. He can weather all of their efforts, and he ends chapter 23 just as he began chapter 21 as the king of the mountain. And why is that? Because he is the king of kings, right? He is the one who sits as Lord of not some things, but the Lord of all, right? And we see that come clear inside of the Scripture. Now, this is important for us to reflect on and to think about because we live in a world today where people are still asking questions of Jesus, thinking that they can ask a question that he can't answer. 
Whether that is a question that is asked on a documentary about whether he was really the son of God or whether that's a question that is asked in a university classroom about if he was just another rabbi or, or whether it is someone in our society today looking at his teaching and saying, how dare he say those things? Those are outdated, even unloving or immoral by some estimations of some people. I don't believe they're correct, but they look at the claims of Christ and they still ask questions about his identity or what he is doing or what he does. What we're going to see, friends, over the next four Sundays is that Jesus can handle our questions. He can provide answers to those questions when we come to him. Because the questions I just asked and many more are either questions that someone in your home or someone in your family or someone in your seat, that's you, are asking today. We can bring those requests to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, over 100 years ago, said this. He says, the quibblers of our day need not be in too great a hurry to call their statements unanswerable. Jesus will answer for himself in due time. And we see that pattern play out for us as we look at Matthew 21 through 23. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at two different sections of Matthew 21 to 23. Uh, The first, chapter 21, verses 23 through 27, and the second, chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. In those two short sections, we really have the bookends of a conversation that Jesus has with a number of leaders of Israel in the Temple Mount area. So I want to read for us those two sections, and then after I read them, we'll go back and unpack them and see a couple of critical things for us to remember about how Jesus is the king of the mountain. So let's begin in Matthew 21 and verse 23. It says, And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him, as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gives you this authority? Well, Jesus answered them and he said, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, He will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then continuing on in chapter 22, verse 41, it says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day. Did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? Now, friends, in these two different sections today, we're going to see two things 
about how Jesus is the king of the mountain. And we're going to look at them really as they flow from the scripture, both a question that is asked by the chief priests and the elders and the answer that Jesus gives. So let's begin with the question that is asked. And that question put into maybe a modern vernacular is something like this. Jesus, can you show us your ID? Now, where do we see that? In order to understand that, we really need to, to look at the context and the, the central players of what's happening in Matthew 21, verse 23 and following. See, the context of Matthew 21 is that Jesus had just entered into Jerusalem. He came on Palm Sunday. He rode in on the donkey. There was a celebration. When he gets to town, he goes to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he overturns the tables of the money changers and he lets loose the animals that were being sold there. And he calls out with very strong words the practice that was happening in the temple area because the temple area was supposed to be a place where people could worship and could learn about worshiping the true God. But the leaders of Israel at that time had taken that area that was meant for worship and they had turned it into a profit center. They had turned it into an opportunity to exploit others, not to serve them. And Jesus sees this, and he turns over those tables. Now, this is a passage of Scripture we looked at just a little over a month ago now. But after he turns over those tables, and after he calls out those religious leaders, Jesus stayed in the temple, and he, he taught the masses, he taught the crowd. And after he, he taught the crowd, he also... Uh, spent time healing those who had serious illness and infirmity, and then he left. Well, the next day, Jesus comes back. And when Jesus gets back to the temple, it says that the chief priests and the elders show up to ask him a question. Now, who are the chief priests and the elders? The chief priests and the elders were two different groups of people that made up an organization called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing body of Israel at the time of Jesus. Now, by the time these events are playing out, their jurisdiction had been shrunk from all of Israel to just the area of Judea, but that included uh, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount area. So Jesus had done a majority of his ministry up north in Galilee, outside of the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, but now he had come into Jerusalem, and he had, in a a very dramatic way, had cleared the temple and had called out the practice that was happening there. And the leaders of Israel, who oversaw the temple area, see what is going on, and they come over and they say, hey, what are you doing? And who gives you authority to do such a thing? I mean... You just are turning over tables, you're causing a scene, you're, you're calling us snakes. I mean, we're going to have to see some ID. We're going to have to see where you get your authority. We need to see your permit to preach. We need to see your, your paperwork on file at City Hall for why you could have such a demonstration, out in public no less. I mean, they want to know what he is up to, and they question his authority. Now, when they question his authority, Jesus doesn't dodge the question, but in a a beautifully skillful way, he asks them a question in response. He says, okay, we're going to play the question game. Great. Let me ask you a question, and if you can answer my question, I'll answer yours. And so he 
gets into talking about John the Baptist. And he says, by what authority did, did John baptize? In other words, I've been up in Galilee, but you have been here in Judea. And there was a man not very long ago who was ministering in your region, in your territory. Down there at the river, this guy, first name John, middle name the, last name Baptist, was down by the river, and he was conducting ministry. Now, Jesus says, where did he get his license? Where did he file his paperwork? Now, when the chief priests and the elders, they hear this, they first stare at their sandals, and then they huddle up. Okay, guys, let's, let's think about this before we answer. And rather than asking the question, where did John get his authority? Instead, what do they do? They start playing a political game. How is our answer going to play to this audience? And so one of them says, well, you know what? If we say that his authority came from heaven, it came from God, then the the question that ought to be asked of us is how come we didn't embrace him? If John came from God, why did we not go down to the river and be baptized ourselves if he came from God? If he came from God, why did we not put our name on the marquee above his next revival service? If he came from God, why did we not step in and intervene on his behalf before he was beheaded or mistreated by the leaders of that day? They they had the ability to intervene in that way. They did not. The question was, if they said, if we say that he is from God, then the question is, why did we not treat him as if he was from God? Because they didn't. And friends, the reason why that was a dilemma was because the crowd that was gathered in the temple courts, far greater than the Sanhedrin, the crowd that was gathered in the temple courts, many of them believed that John was a prophet. They just wouldn't have played well for them to say that he was from God, but that they didn't embrace him. So they like, well... We can't say that. So the only other option is to say that his authority came from men. But what's the problem with that? If we say his authority came from men, the question would be, from what men? They were the ones in charge. They were the ones in authority. They were the ones in power, and they had not given him this authority. Furthermore, if they said that his authority came from men, the the crowds would have been upset. Because as I mentioned, they believe that John came from the Lord. And so they're in a conundrum. (laughs) They only see two possible answers, and neither one of them is very attractive to them. And so they they look at Jesus and they say, well, you know what? You asked a great question there. We, We really don't know the answer. And Jesus responds and says, well, if you can't answer my question, then I won't answer yours. Now, that interchange is loaded, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But I think it's helpful for us maybe to take a minute and think about why Jesus brought up John the Baptist to begin with. See, John the Baptist had been the forerunner to Jesus, and throughout Jesus's life, he had been linked to John. Remember, John was his, Jesus's cousin, and even while Jesus was still in utero while he was still in Mary's womb. Uh, There was an interaction between Jesus and John, and they had grown up knowing each other. John was the one who had had baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. 
There was a connection between these two. And and even sequentially, there was a a relationship between them because John was the one who came before Jesus. He was the forerunner to prepare people's hearts for him. It's also important to think about the connection that both John and Jesus were both religious outsiders. Now, it's funny for us to say that. How could John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ be religious outsiders from our perspective. But in the first century, they absolutely were. Jesus didn't have his little Pharisee card that he could use for discounts at movie passes and things like that. He wasn't a part of the insiders. Neither was John. They were outsiders to the religious establishment. But here's the thing that I think is even more critical for us to see. Their source of authority both came from the same place. It came from God. In other words, Jesus, in asking the question, in a a not-so-veiled way, gave them their answer. My authority is the same as his in that its root and foundation is in God himself. Another reason why I think Jesus mentioned John, though, was the relationship that John's ministry had with Jesus. I mentioned that the Scripture talks about how John came before Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus. But how did he do that? John Stott helps us understand that when he says, they, meaning the the chief priests and the elders, will never understand who Jesus is until they recognize who John was. John's message of repent is the precondition for Jesus' message, believe. If they have not done the one, they cannot do the other. I think what Stott is getting at there is he's saying that in order for us to understand who Christ is, we have to begin by understanding that we don't have all the answers. We have to begin by understanding that we are sinful, we are broken, and we are fallen, that we are in need of God's grace. We are in need of his forgiveness. We are in need of his direction. Even our understanding of things is limited because our brains are are not perfect, and we make mistakes, and we misunderstand things, and we misinterpret things. John came to remind everyone of that so that their heart condition would be one that says, I don't have it all together and I need what God provides. And when our heart attitude is in that direction, understanding that we don't have it all together, then we're in a position to receive the revelation that God gives for us in Christ. We believe in him who is able to make us whole, not because we are whole. We believe in him who is able to give us our answers, not because we already have all the answers. Jesus is the one that provides ultimately for what we need, but we need to recognize that we have a need to begin with. We see that in this interaction as Jesus reveals in his conversation with the chief priests and the elders that they weren't really interested in seeking truth. They just wanted to trap him. They didn't want to know where John's authority was from or where Jesus' authority was really from. What they wanted to do was they wanted to kill him, something that they would turn him over to be killed in 48 hours. They wanted to discredit him. They weren't seeking truth. Jesus' question reveals that. They were just politically playing the game, trying to take him out. Now, why is it important for us to see that? Well, it's important for us to see it to understand historically what happened in this setting, but it's also important for us to see because we also have questions. 
we also have questions about Jesus. It's either questions about his identity. Is he really the son of God? Is he, is he really the savior of the world? We have either questions about his identity or, or others of us have questions about, do I really need to obey what he says? Does he really have the authority to get into and give direction to my love life or how I express my sexuality or how I treat my neighbor, how I handle my finances? Does he really have the authority to make those kinds of statements, we might wonder? Well, friends, if we come and ask that question with a heart attitude that says, he doesn't, he isn't, he won't, then it's hard for us to ever get to the point of truth. But if we will come and ask those questions and do so with a humble heart that is honestly seeking truth, Jesus can handle those questions and he can provide the direction that we need. Friends, it begins with a question where they ask Jesus to show his ID, to tell everyone where he got his authority. Now, as we read this and as it plays out, it's possible for us to say, well, Jesus didn't really give them an answer. Well, I think he did. He said, my authority and John's authority, they come from the same place. But even if that's a little too nuanced for you, that's why we need to turn over and see what happens in 22, 41 through 46. Because if he didn't answer it in a sufficient fashion for you in chapter 21, he definitely answers it for us in chapter 22. At the end of the conversation, Jesus comes back around and provides two forms of identification. Now, this is significant. This is important. We don't do important things without providing more than one form of ID. It's not enough to give your driver's license sometimes. You need your driver's license and your birth certificate or your driver's license and your passport for really important things to verify your identification. Jesus didn't just provide you know, some one form of ID, but he provides at least two forms of ID that verify who he was and where his authority came from. Now, we see this play out for us as Jesus asks a question. Now, keep in mind, he is in a a temple court area where there are a lot of people milling around. And initially, the question came from the chief priests and the elders. It came from the Sanhedrin. But as Jesus was talking, a number of different people, and we'll see this over the next three Sundays, come up and ask him questions. The Sadducees ask him questions, and the Herodians ask him questions, and the Pharisees ask him questions. And so Jesus is fielding question after question after question. But when we get to chapter 22, verse 41, Jesus now asks a question. And he turns to the Pharisees, and he asks them a question. Now, I think it's it's fascinating to see the question that he asks because Jesus has been asked questions about politics. He's been asked questions about marriage and remarriage. He's been asked questions about a number of different things that were designed to to trip him up. They, They thought we have come up with the hardest question we can think of and they would throw it at Jesus. But when we get to chapter 22 verse 41, Jesus asks a question and he doesn't deal in just a secondary question. He doesn't just throw up a smokescreen, but he asks the question of questions. And that question is, who do you think the Christ is? He's not so much interested in the politics of the day. He's not so much interested in the little nuanced theological positions on 8,000 other issues. Jesus cuts right to the chase when he says, what do you think about the Christ? 
He asked them the most pressing, the most important question. Who do you think the Messiah is? And, and in real time, Jesus is saying, who do you say that I am? That's, he's really getting to the most important question. And this is critical for us to think about, right? Because we live in a world, if we reach out and we want to share our faith with some, someone else, and sometimes we don't reach out and don't share our faith because we're afraid of the questions that might come back to us. But if we reach out and share our faith with someone else, we're afraid they might ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. And it might be a question about, you know, what, what happened to the dinosaurs or what about this verse or that verse or how does the Old Testament connect with the New Testament? There's a thousand questions that could be asked. And a thousand questions were asked of Jesus. But Jesus, very patiently, he interacts with them, he answers questions, but he ultimately pulls it back to not just a question, but to the question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that the Christ is? That's the question that he asks. Now, in order to answer that question, Jesus provided two forms of identification, two forms of ID to argue for who he was and how he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. The first form of ID that Jesus provides is he provides the identification card of his service, his life, what he did. Jesus did not live his life as a monk on a hill, isolated from everyone else where no one could see or experience what he, what he did or what he taught. He lived out his life in public. He taught in the temple courts. He taught on the mountainside. You didn't have to have a special ticket. You didn't have to be a part of a special club. Everyone in the first century who wanted access to Jesus could get access to him. He preached in public because he wanted them to know him. He wanted them to check out the claims of what he was saying. He wanted to introduce himself to them. He, he did so in public. And not only did he, did he teach them well and reveal those things in public, but also he did his miracles in public. It's not like, I think Jesus one time did this miracle, and he did it like at this one guy's house and nobody else saw it. No, he fed thousands of people in front of thousands of people so that billions of people would know that he had the authority and the power to feed the masses. He, he healed people who were blind and who were deaf and who were lame and who were crippled, not small disturbances, not small illnesses and ailments, big ones, the biggest of his day. And he healed them not in obscure locations, but in public places. And he healed them not in public places in the middle of the night, but in the middle of festivals, in the the middle of, of times when everybody was out on the streets and interacting. Jesus lived his life in public because he wanted to show the identification card of his service so that they would know who he was. Now, we don't see this explicitly Inside of Matthew 22, though, this is happening in a public place, very public place, at a very, you know, time when the, the city of Jerusalem was loaded with people. I mean, it, it's there, but, but we especially see it in the way that Jesus answered a question, incidentally, to some of the followers of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, verses 20 through 23, the, these men... Uh, who are followers of John the Baptist, show up at at Jesus, and, and it says, John the Baptist has sent us to you, Jesus, saying, is Jesus really the one who is to come? Is he the Messiah? Or shall we continue to look for someone else? Well, in that hour, when that question was asked, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. 
And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Friends, Jesus lived his life and his service in public to show a form of identification that showed that he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. His resurrection was in public so that people would know that the tomb was empty. Verifications of who he was, the ID card of his service. But not only does he provide the identification card of his service, but he provides a second form of ID. And that second form of ID is is revealed uh, clearly in these verses in verse 41 and following because Jesus asks this group a question again. He says, okay, we want to talk about the Christ, and so let me ask you a question about the Christ, you Pharisees. Whose son is he? What family tree will the Christ, the Messiah, be attached to? Now, when Jesus asked this question, he's asking it to Pharisees who love to be right, right? And so he asked this question, and I'm guessing there were a group, we don't know how many Pharisees were there. Let's say there were 20. There were 20 people with their hands in the air going, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. I know the answer. Pick me, pick me. And so Jesus says, okay, where, where, what line is the Messiah supposed to come from? And they say, he's supposed to come from the line of David. Now, they said this not because they just imagined it and not because of some folklore, but they said it because it is a known fact of the Old Testament Scriptures that the Messiah would come from the line of David. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in Micah chapter 5, in Isaiah chapter 11, in Jeremiah chapter 23, in Psalm chapter 78, and that's not even an exhaustive list. A number of different places, a number of different times, it is said that the Messiah will come from the line as a descendant of David. Now, after they say that, Jesus says, okay, ding, 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 correct. He will be a descendant of David. Incidentally, Jesus is a descendant of David. Flip back to Matthew 1 if you want later and look at the lineage of Christ. He is a descendant of David. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He gets much more specific. And rather than quoting any of the the other passages about the Messiah that he could have, we've seen the the list of verses that mention that Messiah would be from David's line. Instead, he flips to another passage that talks about this, and that is Psalm 110. Interesting, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. I think that's in part because the disciples love this event right here. I mean, they're just, they, they love this moment um, because Jesus here quoted it. They didn't, they didn't think about it later. The Spirit didn't prompt them about this. They got to see it play out right there in front of them where Jesus quoted Psalm 110 as an identifier of who the Messiah really is. So they're having this conversation and Jesus says, okay, well then let's talk about David. David wrote Psalm 110. And he says, King David, you know the one that you like, because they were in favor of King David. I mean, who's against King David? It's like being against George Washington or something. I mean, how can you be against King David? He said, King David, the one that you like, he said, and he didn't just say of his own opinion, but he said it 
in the Spirit. Jesus said, King David said, prompted and inspired by the Spirit of God, he said something. So you really ought to listen. You like King David? You like the Spirit of God? Great. Guess what the Spirit of God told King David to say? He says this, the Lord said to my Lord, it's a quote from Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how was he also his son? In other words, how can someone be a descendant of David and greater than David? Didn't make sense to them. How can someone be a descendant of David and the Lord who has all things under his authority? How can it possibly be that someone could be both a descendant of David and the God who reigns forever. How is it possible? Well, what was Jesus saying? It's possible, just look at me. Jesus, a descendant of David, was also God eternal. God and man come together. He pulls out the identification card of Scripture to show that he is the Son of God. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, the last chapter of the New Testament Scripture, I think has Psalm 110 and uh, Matthew 22 in its back pocket when it says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. How can that be possible? It can only be possible if the Son of God was also born in time in the family tree of David. Jesus was revealing that through the ID card of Scripture. Now, it's interesting. I, I love uh, this, this verse because there's so much theology that is packed into his quotation here of Psalm 110. Uh, don't, don't blame me. Just look at a few of the things. We see evidence of the authority of Scripture here. David didn't just say this of his own will, but he said it in the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit of God. David, as he wrote Scripture, that's what he was writing. There's also a a comment here about the eternality of Jesus. He didn't begin in Bethlehem, but he was the Lord even in David's day, a thousand years earlier. We see also the the hypostatic union. That's a a fancy theological term that talks about the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus united together in one person. We see that as he is both a Lord and the Son. We also see here the, the Trinity as even a conversation happens between the Lord and and my Lord, between God the Father and God the Son. We see the hint even in the Old Testament of the the Trinity of God. We see the authority of Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And we see the ultimate victory that Jesus will bring, that all of his enemies will be placed under his feet. Jesus, in quoting this, what is he doing? He's pulling out the Scripture, and he's handing it as his ID card to say, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know who the Messiah is, Look at my life and look at the Scripture and see these two forms that argue that I am indeed the Son of God. 
Now, friends, that is critical and it's important for us to to think about today because if we are here and we are asking questions about Jesus, we have not yet trusted in Christ. We have not yet taken that step into Christianity as a follower of him. We are asking the question, is he one that I need to follow? Is he any different from any other religion? Friends, we see in these two forms of ID that he is. And he invites us into a relationship with him to trust him in faith and to acknowledge the reality that he is the Son of God. But for others of us in the room, we're here today, and we're not asking the question, is Jesus the Son of God? But we really have forgotten it in our daily practice. We're looking at the the challenges and the things that we're facing, and we're looking at the commands of Scripture, and we say, did he really mean it? Do I really have to do that? Do I really have to obey what God is calling me to obey? Is that really the way that it is? And if we're here asking those questions so that we can justify some form of our behavior or our sin, friends, we need to look at those two forms of ID and remember that Jesus absolutely has the authority to step into our lives and to point the way. But here's what's beautiful. As he does that, he doesn't do that in order to smite us. He does that in order to bless us. He steps in with that authority and he uses it not as the Pharisees did, to build up their own personal whatever. He does it to bless us with life and hope and forgiveness. And we need to remember that as we check out his ID and remember that he is the king of the mountain. Father, thank you so much for just the privilege and the opportunity to, to, to read your word today and to be reminded of these great truths. Father, we pray that even as we leave this room, that we would be a group of people who would remember who Jesus is. We would remember the ID that he has provided, and we would would trust in him and follow him in faith and in obedience as the Son of God, the one who possesses all authority under heaven. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.